you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I see a few new faces. My name is Mike, along with Cleet, Charles, and Nick. Get to serve as one of the pastors or under-shepherds here. We're grateful that you are with us. We are in a series uh, through a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians, and we are specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Father, thank you that made like him, like him we will rise. This is the great hope that we have, that we will live with you in our bodies forever. And Lord, that's what today's passage is all about. I pray, Lord, that you help me and help us in our understanding move this down from the fog bank of theology to the shoe leather of everyday life. Because this is theology for the deathbed. This is theology for the gravesite. This is theology for the shattered heart. As we wait in hope of the resurrection, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Pastor Cleet opened up the service by reading the Apostles' Creed. I want to call your attention to one of the confessions of the Apostles' Creed where it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. This truth about the coming resurrection of the body is a uniquely Christian teaching. Now, there are cults that teach that, but they're kind of offshoots of biblical Christianity, whether it's Mormonism and others. That all comes from the Bible. The future hope of our bodily resurrection is uniquely Christian reality, teaching, truth, doctrine. And yet, if you've been tracking with us through the series, there were people at the church at Corinth who were saying, no way, baby. We are not going to have our bodies rise from the dead. That's ludicrous. You're taking this resurrection stuff way too literally. And there were probably two reasons behind their opposition to the clear teaching that one day we will be raised bodily from the dead. Number one, there would be a worldview reason, a philosophical reason, something that we look back now and call Greek dualism. And basically, Greek dualism uh, posits this. It says spirit or, or soul is good, but our body, material stuff, well, that's bad. And so death was seen as actually kind of a ridding you of your unneeded, inherently sinful husk. The Greeks were known to say that our bodies are tombs for our soul, so it's a good thing when you can get rid of that tomb and get out of it. Cicero said, what soul ever would ever want to go back to its former body that is now rotted? So for them, this wasn't a great idea. And I just want to say that worldview, which still exists today, is flat out wrong. Matter, and specifically our bodies, are not inherently sinful. Now, we are sinful through the fall of humanity, but they're not inherently sinful. We see this most of all, do we not, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God himself became one of us, right? Yet without sin. 
And he did so, mind you, in the womb of a woman. God became man through the womb of a woman. Bodies are not bad. Bodies matter, which is why Christians should and have historically cared about people from womb all the way to tomb because bodies matter. But they had embraced this worldview of Greek dualism, which got in the way of them embracing the clear teaching of Scripture. And it helps me, it makes me ask the question, do we have any fallen worldviews that keep us from embracing the truth of Scripture? Now, there's a second experiential reason I think they had a hard time accepting the resurrection, namely this. Bodies just don't rise from the dead, right? I've been asked to do tons of funerals. I've officiated many a funeral. I've never once had somebody ask me, hey, Pastor Mike, I would like you to officiate a a resurrection this coming Friday night at 6. It's just not been done. That's not what happens. Bodies tend to stay dead, right? They they go in the ground, and then, uh, Dr. Haber, what happens after that? We don't need to be a doctor to know what happens to dead flesh. It decomposes. It rots. I know that sounds dark. I'm just being real. And I think we we tend to think that ancient believers or just ancient people in general, that they were more given, more gullible to believing stuff like this. But I got to tell you, they were just as skeptical about resurrection physically from the dead as we are today. In fact, we can make a case even more skeptical because wasn't death much more in their face for them than it is for us today? What with our modern medicine and modern burial techniques? No, people back then died at a much uh, lower age. Like 53, which is my age, that would have been like great, great, great grandfather. I mean, really old, right? The median age was just the death age was a lot lower. And the infant mortality rate, for instance, and just the mortality rate of people below six years old was shockingly high. And whenever anybody of any age died, they didn't waste no time in getting that body in the grave, not having the benefits of modern refrigeration, modern embalming, and so forth. So you're telling these people for whom death was a fairly regular occurrence, and they saw what happens to a dead body, you're telling us that we're going to come back in those bodies? No, that's incredulous. And you have to admit, the idea of a bodily resurrection, step back for a second, that's kind of a fantastical idea, isn't it? Isn't that kind of a crazy idea? That bodies are going to come back from the dead and not as the walking dead? John Calvin said this, there is nothing that is more at variance with human reason than this particular article of faith our future bodily resurrection. For who but God alone could persuade us that bodies, which are now liable to corruption, will, after having rotted away, or after they've been consumed by fire, or torn in pieces by wild beasts, will not merely be restored in entirety, but in a greatly better condition. Do not all our apprehensions of this straightway reject this as a thing fabulous, nay, a thing most absurd? Oh, Calvin's got a point, right? What about bodies that perish in house fires that are reduced just to ashes? What about them? 
What about bodies lost at the depths of the sea? Seven miles down, Mariana's Trench. What about bodies dismembered in a horrific traffic accident? What about bodies blown to smithereens by a bomb? What about bodies that just kind of melt away into dust after six centuries in the ground? What about that? I know these descriptions, again, sound rather dark. This is a very encouraging sermon, Pastor Mike, talking about bodies being blown. I'm just being real, right? And while I'm being real, let me be real about funerals. I mentioned funerals a few minutes ago. I have had the privilege of doing many, many funerals. And every person who's done any amount of funerals know that there are some funerals that are easier to do and some that are harder to do. Well, for one, did they know the Lord or did they not know the Lord? That's a major factor. But I think for another thing, it's just the age of the person, right? I mean, when I do the funeral of a 94-year-old man, there's there's sadness because they miss this man, but he lived a full life, right? Children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. It's not a hard funeral to do as we celebrate his life and point to the Lord. But what about when I have to do the funeral of a young mother with two toddlers? And she goes in the hospital on a Tuesday for a seemingly common infection, and by Friday, she's dead. What about that? What about the young, what about the 32-year-old the man? Comes home from work before he eats dinner and plays with his kids. He says, I'm going to go for a quick jog. He's in shape, and bam, he, he dies down at the street corner of a heart attack. And his wife has to get a call. Your husband's laying in the street. What about, this is one that just, a 19-year-old leaving a Christian camp, and is T-boned at an intersection and is sent out into eternity? Or how about, I know a pastor, this happened. What about a pastor with a six-year-old son? And they haven't seen him for 10 minutes. They go look for him, and they find him floating face down in the pool, not to be revived. What about that, that funeral? What about the stillborn baby? And you know I could go on, and I know you could go on with heart-shattering examples of what I'm talking about, right? And my question is, what can you say to yourself when someone around you who you love dearly is lost like that? What are you going to say? You're going to say it'll be okay? That's not, they're not coming back right now where you're at. They're not. What do you say? Well, God's in control. Well, that really helps in that point of peak pain. What are you going to say? They're still with you? That's a bunch of sappy manure. How are you going to face your ever-looming own mortality that death is stalking you right now? About a month ago, I think it was a Thursday, I took up the tile on my kitchen floor, young, strong, no problem there. I think the next day, I was out at a friend's farming property setting up for this fall hunting season, and I picked up a large plow, no problem there young and strong. And then 70 minutes before church, 70 minutes before I'm going to preach, I just, I'm afraid to do it or not right now again. I reached down to touch my boot and bam, Susan remembers this. I was just seized up with a back spasm. 
And that Sunday, I was kind of like this, if you remember. Like, I didn't move at all. I'm still not moving as much as I used to. Cleet said to me, you know, we can't do the things we used to do. He's right. We can't. I'm 53. I got a lot more years behind me than I have ahead of me. And I know some of you say, that is, that, I don't even think about that. I'm telling you, the time is coming when you're going to think about that. Because, yes, the days are long, but the years are short. And that's why this text, the truth of today's text, is so encouraging to our hearts about future coming resurrection bodies. Again, a distinctly Christian doctrine. Many Christians have etched on the tomb of their loved ones, etched on the headstone, these words, in hope of the resurrection. Those are beautiful words. And I just want, I hope, I hope the Spirit of God buries this, this big idea, this single truth in our hearts this morning that we will rise. The day's coming, we will rise. And this is just not a, a, a creed for our head. This speaks to the need of our hearts. This is theology with shoe leather on it for when they need to go to hospice, at the gravesite memorial service, and for shattered hearts. Y'all with me? I had kind of, I, I have an outline. It's not a fancy, what they call homiletical outline. It's more an exegetical outline because I, I just want the truth of this to come out in our hearts. Now, Paul begins this particular section with two questions in verse 35. A how question and a what question. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's a how and what question. And, and by the way, those are great questions for non-Christians. And if you're a non-Christian here and you're wondering about this thing about bodily resurrection, that is a great question to ask, two great questions, and, and we'll answer that question for you. God will from the, from the text of Holy Scripture. But Paul, you'll see, verse 36, has a different take on this question, doesn't he? Sometimes we hear there's no such thing as a bad question. Look at what Paul says. Now, probably he's saying that because they were saying, they're asking him in unbelief. These are, when this kind of question comes from a confessing Christian, right? He actually, and, and they're usually saying, oh, you're, you, there's no way that can happen. What just matters is you believe in Jesus, resurrection, whatever, you take it or leave it. Look at what Paul says. Look at what he says. He's kind of strong, isn't he? You foolish person. And the ESV takes the edge off that. It actually reads, you fool. And fool is, in, a, in the Bible, a very strong word. What's up, Paul? Did you have a bad sleep last night? Did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Do you need to go to decaf? What's going on? Are you just angry right, right now? No, the reason Paul says that, because a fool is one who rejects the truth of God. That's, that's what a fool is. One who says, no, I know better than you about anything and everything, including resurrection. Proverbs 1.7, listen, if you want wisdom, it begins with realizing only that you need to go to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools, they stiff arm, they despise wisdom and instruction. 
And all through this chapter, Paul has been making the point. You remember from last week and the week before that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we too will what? Rise from the dead. In fact, it's like Paul is saying, how could you even debate this? Because it was part of how you got into the family of God, if you really got into the family of God. It was part of your confession. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and you believe in your heart that God raised her from the dead, you will be saved. So by your very confession, you said you believe in resurrection. But now you're saying it's not literal, literal for us coming up? So what he's going to do now is make argument after argument. Let's follow him through this for why it is we will rise and how it is we will rise. Argument number one is from agriculture, from planting. That's verses 36 to 38. Let me read these verses. He says, you foolish person, now argument number one from planting or agriculture, what you sow, that's like plant, right, does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare, literally naked kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to, into each kind of seed its own body. Paul is saying, listen, I've already given you illustrations that bodies come back from the dead in agriculture. If you have ever heard, held a seed in your hand, and most people have, planted that seed in the ground, you've literally held proof that God gives life to the dead. That God is a God of resurrection. That he makes dead things live again and even live in a better way. So you take a seed and you put it in the ground, and what comes up later? I don't know, a tree, a bush, a shrub, a plant of some sorts, a flower. In fact, we're entering a time of the year when this is illustrated beautifully as tulip bulbs all over, boom, come to life and burst gloriously, springtime. Or if you're going to do a vegetable garden or a flower garden, it won't be before too long when you will see the first shoots of life, right, from those dead seeds. What he is saying is this, dead seeds come to life all the time. You see resurrection all the time. And I'm able to bring life out of dead seeds. Why can't I bring life out of dead bodies? It's an argument from agriculture. And he even advances on, he asks that kind of the how question now he's going to give us, he's going to answer the other side of the question, which is, or with the what question, what, what's it going to look like? And I think in this illustration, he kind of shifts gears and he goes from, um, I guess you would call from, from continuity to transformation of our future resurrection bodies. Let me put it this way. He shows in this planting analogy, in this agricultural analogy, the sameness but also the differentness, if you will, the difference, the distinguishing differences between our resurrection bodies tomorrow and our present bodies today. Drop your eyes once again on verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is what? 
to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of its seed, its own body. In other words, you plant an acorn, and what do you ultimately get? You get an oak tree. What did you say? You said poison ivy? No, that's crazy. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, that, that was me. Which clearly is a fruit of the fall, poison ivy, but that's something else. So you put an acorn in, and out comes an oak tree, right? Is that the same thing? Yeah, yes, right? But there's also a difference. And I think what he's getting at is we are right now to our future resurrection bodies, what an acorn is to a tree. When I come out of the ground, I'm not coming out as Anwar Wright, I'm coming out as Mike Hanafy. But the Mike Hanafy that comes out of the ground is not the same Mike Hanafy you see right here. Continuity, but transformation. And exactly what the difference is, we'll dial into in the third heading. But let's go to the second one. He gives us an argument from agriculture. Y'all with me? And now, and agriculture gives us illustrations of resurrection every day. Number two, he's going to give us an argument from creation at large. Verse 39b, 39 to 42b. Let me just read it. For not all flesh is the same. Or you might read, for not all bodies are the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for... There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And basically, I think what he's saying here is, if God can make all kinds of bodies... Why can't he make a resurrection body? He makes tons of bodies. Look at some of the bodies that he makes. Let me just review again. There's one kind of body for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And if you know anything about that, you know there's different bone structures, right? There's different ways to breathe. There's different flesh, all of that. He talks about different heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars, variation between all the stars, on and on and on. And the idea is this. Each of them has its own glory. You saw the word glory, right? And each was perfectly suited by its creator to exist and flourish in its assigned environment. Birds might live on the water, but do birds live under the water? No, they weren't given gills. You and I can exist right here on planet Earth, but are we going to be able to exist out in space? No, we need another body, a body of a spacesuit. And I just really simply, what I think he's getting at yet very profoundly is this. If God is able to make bodies for all kinds of environments, he is more than able, more than capable of making us bodies appropriate for the age to come. So you have an argument from agriculture, you have an argument from creation at large. But now, third of all, he's going to contrast our bodies today with our future resurrection bodies of tomorrow. Let me read 42b to 44. He said with that last one, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now, what is sown, verse 42, is perishable, 
What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And what he, what he, what he shows us here is that he gives us four, four particular contrasts to show that resurrection is not merely reconstruction of our bodies. It's not merely resuscitation, like when someone, you know, is, is drowned, but you're able to revive them. It's not that. In fact, all the resurrections you see in the Bible except Jesus were more that, right? People ultimately died again. But what good is it if you're raised to a body that still has cancer, right? Or what good is it to be raised with a body that is still susceptible to cancer? No, there is a categorical difference between reconstruction and resuscitation and bodily resurrection in Christ from the dead. Let's look quickly at these four comparisons. He says in verse 42, what is sown, there we go, right? Agricultural analogy again, right? Planted. What is planted is perishable. Now again, I don't think anyone could argue against me that from the moment you breathe your first breath outside of mama, you inch closer and closer and closer to death. And, and, and man knows it because God has put eternity in our hearts. And as we saw last week, so what do people do? They obsessively fight it or they sentimentally envision it. And we do that because we know that death is always stalking us. For everyone here, it's, a not, a, it's not a matter of if, right? It's merely a matter of when? And since we're using some dark allusions today, and how? Right? And to be candid, there very well could be people here this morning who will be six feet under the ground bodily a week from today. Right? And as we approach that day, We show our perishability more and more and more. Oh, Pastor Nick, with that blasphemous jersey on today, okay? Um, a couple weeks ago, as he's gathering pictures, he said, yeah, you and Cleet sure have aged uh, <laughs> since we started. Like, and that's true, church planning. Like, they should put one of those age apps on, like, to the seventh degree you age, you know? It's true. There's the five Bs of middle age. Baldness for, for men. I guess I can hit women as well. Uh, what's the next B? Bifocals. I got my little dime sword cheaters right here. Bridges, right? Your teeth go. The bulge right here. And then bunions down at those beautiful feet we've been talking about. Every morning for us, as you get older, it's Rice Krispies. I'm not talking about what you're putting in the bowl. I'm talking about the sound of your body when you get out of bed. <laughs> Snap, crackle, pop. We are perishing, right? And yet, it beautifully says, one day, this perishable is going to put on what? It's going to be raised imperishable, imperishable, no longer subject to decaying, to decomposition, to death, no. Made like him, like him will rise 
as we just sang. Let's look at the second contrast. It says, it is sown our bodies in dishonor. Ever since the fall, even believers, do we not battle shame or dishonor inwardly, right? And one day that's all going to be gone. Praise God. But if we're honest, the fall has also scarred us outwardly, wouldn't you think? And sometimes you see it really with people who, who choose to live a really hard life. You're like, whoa, that looks old for 37, right? I'm just being honest, right? Sin does affect us outwardly, but affects us all outwardly no matter how we live. Remember the first place I served in ministry, Community Baptist Church, South Bend, Indiana. There's a man, elderly man, and he walked around with a real limp. His foot was almost like floppy. I found out for good reason during Korea, a tank literally ran over his foot. I have no idea how they jigsaw puzzled that thing together, but they did. But later on now, here's, he's at Community Baptist where I'm at serving, and he, gets, he, he starts just getting racked. He gets Alzheimer's, you know, and you've ever been around something like that? That's tough. And then cancer hits him. And I remember this formerly strong 185-pound man reduced to maybe a buck, maybe 105 pounds. And, and, I, and I was with him the night that he went home to be with the Lord with his family, and I open up to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. I was reading out of the King James, and I, I said, hey, our, our citizenship is in heaven from where we await for a Savior who will transform our, it reads, vile bodies. And I remember reading that, and this look of shock came across his dear wife's face. And when we were done, she pulled me aside, and she said, don't, don't ever say that again. His body is not vile. Our bodies are not vile. And I was very polite, but the reality is it was vile. He looked like death. He was wasted away, reduced to, to just a kernel of what he used to be. But the scripture does say right here, what is sown in dishonor will be raised in what? In glory. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 again, we wait our citizenship is in heaven from where we await for a Savior. Now listen, who will transform our vile or lowly bodies, ESV, into the likeness of his glorious body. Now listen to this. God said on the sixth day at the peak of his creation when he created the first man and woman, ah, now that's what? Not just good, what did he say? Very good, the inherent dignity of people. But this is what he will say at the great getting up day. Not just very good but very glorious, a body like Christ. Not Christ's divine nature, of course, but right like his resurrected, glorified human nature. Then it goes on to say this, verse 44. It is sown, I'm sorry, verse 33. It is sown in weakness, and let's just be honest, even at our peak, we're so doggone weak, aren't we? but we one day will be raised in power. We will have, as it says in Hebrews, the power of an indestructible life. Now, I don't know exactly what that is like. I think people get, but remember Jesus' body? Like there was, there was a physicality to it, right, in his resurrected, glorified state. Like it's not like you could just push your finger through him. As we'll see in the skit, Mary could literally touch him. And yet, he could just kind of walk through walls at will, right? 
That's the kind of body we're going to have. I don't know how else to fill that out, but the power of an indestructible life. And then he says this. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, cults lay hold of that in something we're going to look at as well next week, and let's say, see, body's bad. We're raised spiritual bodies. Just read the text in context. He's already made the case we're going to rise physically from the dead. What he means by spiritual body is not the absence of a physical body, but a physical body that is, has the capacity to live in the eternal spiritual realm. That's what he's talking about. A body that can accommodate and thrive in the spiritual realm. Listen, we couldn't go right into the spiritual realm right now. You ever thrown styrofoam into fire? How long does that last? People who work for the EPA love that. I'm not talking about that, though, okay? But it just, it just burns right up, right? We, now I'm going to date myself, but I think of that guy getting melted away when they open up the Ark of the Covenant, I think it is, and Raiders of Lost Ark. Anybody remember they just melts away? If we stepped into the Lord's presence right now, we would just melt away by his holiness, right? But with our glorified bodies, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, raised a spiritual body. Well, let's move on to the fourth one, okay? And I'll hit that real quick. Y'all with me? We will what? Rise, an argument from agriculture, an argument from creation at large, four contrasts between our bodies now and our future resurrection body. And finally, there is a comparison he gives between those in Adam and those in Christ. Now, I know that this, this section can be really confusing. He's hearkening back. Do you remember the comparison he made last week, verses 21 and 22? You're either in Adam or in Christ. Do you remember that, the whole federal headship thing? That just as an elected politician represents his or her constituents, Adam represents those who are in him, and Christ represents those who are now in him. Through Adam we saw came death. And through Christ comes eternal life. Well, he just furthers that analogy right here, or that comparison, I should say, by, by calling Adam a man of dust and Jesus the man of heaven. Let's read these verses. Verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's Genesis 2.17 being pointed to right there. The last Adam, referring to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, that's Adam. And the second man is from heaven, that's Jesus. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, there's a lot there, but I would condense it into this. The man of heaven became a man of dust so that we men and women of dust could take on heavenly bodies. You remember that agricultural analogy I just reminded us of again? Do you know who started that? Jesus Christ. In John chapter 12 and verse 24, he said this, 
prophesying of his own impending crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. He said, and you can probably finish this for me, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, what? It brings forth much fruit. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, the main theme of this book is that God would send a Savior to save people from the penalty and the power of one day, even the presence of their sin. And he would do so through his Messiah. People, and we all did, apart from the work of the Spirit, apart from a heart that submitted, we all, people inherently, do you know, hate this message? They hate the message of Jesus crucified for our sins. Because then you have recognize, woo, I'm pretty bad. Somebody had to die for me. Right, but you're also loved. That's why he died for you. And people don't like that message on their own. They don't like the truth of the resurrection. And even people who claim to be pastors and Christian professors reject this truth in sneaky kind of ways. Well, he rose spiritually or something like that. Anybody ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? He was a radio Bible teacher for years and years. Older folks here probably listened to him a little bit. Some great, just solid teaching. And he uh, received a letter from a lady one time. This is what the lady wrote. She said, my pastor preached that Jesus did not really die on the cross and that his disciples later revived him. This is what he wrote back. Dear sister, beat your pastor with a leather whip with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Let him hang on that cross for six hours in the hot sun. Run a spear through his heart, embalm him, and then put him in an airless tomb for three days, and tell me what happens to your pastor. Now, this is true. We've seen it all through 1 Corinthians 15. We had the proof of the word of God, said it would happen before it ever happened. The proof of eyewitnesses, more than most historical events that nobody even begins to doubt and the proof of transformed lives today by the resurrected Christ. And I just, I just want to brag on Jesus. The story of 1 Corinthians 15 is that the imperishable one became perishable for us perishable ones that we might put on imperishability. The story of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 is that the glorious one experienced dishonor so that us dishonor, dishonorable ones might experience everlasting glory in his presence. The story of 1 Corinthians 15 is that the all-powerful one became weak so that we who are more than weak might become powerful. The story of 1 Corinthians 15, nay, the story of the Scripture is this, that Jesus Christ, who deserved life, experienced death that we who deserve eternal death might experience life. Now, speaking about death and life, and I, and I close with this. If you are only born once, you are going to die twice. But if you die twice, you're going to be born, you're going to die. If you're born twice, you only die once. Let me, let me fill that out. 
That's kind of a tongue twister. Let me say it again to make sure I get it right. If you're only born once, you'll die twice. If you're only, but if you, but you're born twice, you only die once. Yeah, there it is. So, it, it, you know, it's a sad day when you get clapped for just saying a, a sentence like the way it should be spoken. But I receive that in love. Okay. Um, let me give you this analogy for those who die outside of Christ. That's horrific. First, you're going to go to the county jail, and then you're going to go to the state penitentiary. So if you die, if you only experience, put it this way, if you only experience natural birth, duh, you're alive, and not spiritual birth, something Jesus called being born again, you will experience physical death, but you will also experience eternal death. And eternal death, again, false teachers, doesn't mean that somehow you just are extinguished. It simply means everlasting conscious separation from God. And it's a two-step process, what that looks like. Jail, penitentiary. When you die, your soul goes to hell. That's pretty sobering, right? And according to Luke chapter 16... It is a place of conscious torment. And even though there's no physicality with your soul, yet you experience pain. Read about the rich man in hell, Luke 16. It is a place of conscious torment. That's jail. Now here's the penitentiary. The time is coming when Jesus Christ is going to raise the dead, saved and unsaved, from the grave. You read about this in chapter 20 of Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, in which you'll read that, that, that hell, that death, that the depths of the sea will all give up the dead in them. And in that moment, we're talking about the unsaved right now, their lost souls will be reunited with their lost bodies. And these unsaved, who the Bible describes in that passage as the small and the great, don't matter what kind of name you had here, right? The small and the great. You will receive the fairest trial ever given because the books will be open. Today, people debate about the evidence. There will be no question about the evidence. I remind you, God is omniscient and omnipresent. A fair judgment fair trial and certain judgment. And the scripture says the bailiffs, the holy angels, will cast people, body and soul, into the lake of fire for eternal torment. This is called the second death. It's not fun to think about. We don't put this on coffee cups and calendars, but it's in scripture. Now, on the flip side, if you experience physical birth, that is, you're alive, physically, and spiritual birth, that is, you confessed your sin and turned to Jesus Christ, if you experience that, then when you physically die, that's the only death you're going to experience. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, you're going to go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Because he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But on that great, so that's the first phase, right? But at the great getting up day, that's going to come. That's what we're going to boast about next week. In the twinkling of an eye, 
At the sound of the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise and our glorified, our bodies will become glorified, reunited with our soul, and we will dwell in the new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness, and we will sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem. Now, what is it going to be for you? Have you experienced a second birth so that you only experience one death, and that one death will be a gateway to glory? Or have you only experienced one birth, and you've rejected Christ? Because until you receive Christ, you're rejecting him. There's no middle ground. And you face eternal condemnation. He offers his son to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. County jail, state pen but have everlasting life. We will rise. It's been said that the graveyards of men are the seed plots of the resurrection. Because Jesus rose in glory. Oh, and that's from where I did my dad's wife's funeral several weeks ago. And I mentioned that in a few sermons, right? That's that's what I look at. That is a seed plot for the resurrection right there. And every time you pass one, we're all going to end up there, right? Our bodies. But we will rise with Christ, those who have trusted Christ. Thomas Watson said this, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. Oh, how precious is the dust of a believer. Count von Zinzendorf founded a group of Christians called the Moravians. Maybe you've heard of him. They had their own church graveyard. They called the burial ground God's Acre. And every Easter Sunday, before the sun would rise, loved ones would stand precisely where their loved ones had been buried. And as the rays of the rising sun began to shoot across the horizon, someone would call out, the Lord is risen. And all would reply, he's risen indeed. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. And then they would worship the risen Lord as they look forward to that great getting up day. This is the word of God.